So welcome uh, again to a special feature of the Political Party Live. My name is Stacy Walker. I'm a co-founder uh, of the Political Party and a co-host of the Political Party Live podcast. To my right is Mr. Simeon Talley. Mr. Simeon Talley is a 2008 Obama alum and entrepreneur and all-around badass in <laughs> eastern Iowa. Welcome, Simeon. Woo-woo. Thanks, Stace. Yes. <laughs> to my far left is my other co-host and co-founder, Misty Rebick. Misty Rebick is a former development professional with Planned Parenthood of the Heartland. She is a co-founder of Iowa Worker Justice Center. Center for Worker Center Justice for Worker of Eastern Justice Iowa. Of Eastern Iowa. Thank you. And is a political operative working with Cassie, Kathy Glasson's gubernatorial campaign here in Iowa. That's right. Welcome, Misty. We can applaud for Misty because she normally <laughs> Misty normally gets all of the applause in the podcast. We have a very special guest with us uh, for this uh, um, podcast, and that is Mr. Jason Kander, who was the first millennial elected to statewide office in Missouri. Uh, Jason Kander's uh, uh, ran for United States Senate, and his ad on uh, background checks you may have seen went viral. We are going to show it for you here in a little bit. He is, um, I'll, I will say, the co-star of Majority 54 <laughs> podcast. If you listen to it, um, you will hear every now and again his wife uh, really kind of steals the show every now and again. On, totally agree. Uh, Majority yeah. uh, 54. And uh, Jason is also the president of Let America Vote. And he is here with us um, for what we hope will be a really, really special event. So give it up for Mr. Jason Candy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I can't imagine that there's anyone here who has not seen uh, the ad from his uh, historic uh, Senate run, uh, but here at Film Scene, and we are so delighted to be at Film Scene. How, how many people have uh, been to Film Scene, patronized this place, seen a movie here? Awesome, awesome, awesome. This is a wonderful venue, and we are so uh, grateful to be here today. Uh, but since we are here in Film Scene, we thought we would uh, show uh, Jason's ad from his campaign. So with no further ado, we're going to shut up for about 30 seconds, and we are going to show the ad that made him famous. <laughs> I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I'd volunteer to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. And in the state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this. That is the best 30 seconds that I have to offer, so <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of all downhill from here. Sorry. That is that is often what I tell my girlfriend, Jason. All right. Ooh, um, I like these jokes so that we're doing today. So it's, this, <laughs> it's this, that kind of podcast. This, it's that kind of podcast. It is that kind of podcast. It's just now 2 o'clock. Wait till it's 3. Ooh. <laughs> Good to know. In the, all right. So... Um, since we just saw this ad, and uh, this this really was a game changer, um, I think for your campaign and for uh, folks around the country who were tracking on this race, just talk to us about the why. Why was this an important thing for you to do at that at that point in time? Sure. So, you know, at at the time, what was going on in the race was that actually um, we were doing really really well. Um, we and so I think sort of sometimes people look at it and think, oh, well, this ad happened, and then all of a sudden the race got tight. Actually, um, we, like, I think a poll came out uh, either the day that we released the ad or the day before or whatever, where we, we had taken a lead 
already. But the other thing that was going on was that uh, the uh, NRA was running millions of dollars in TV ads against me, pointing out that I had an F rating from the NRA. Uh, and, uh, and on top of that, the NRA actually hated me so much that uh, Wayne LaPierre, the president of the NRA, personally came to Missouri to campaign against me. Uh, so when that happened, uh, a lot of folks who were you know, supporters of the campaign, they reached out with suggestions about what they thought we should do. And the most common suggestion was they thought that we should uh, make one of those ads where you've seen Democratic candidates do this, where we, I like shoot a really big gun and then talk about how much I love hunting <laughs> and, and basically pretend to be a Republican. I, that was pretty much the <laughs> suggestion that everybody made. But, you know, I'm a proud progressive from a red state and I didn't get into politics to play character on TV. Uh, so instead, uh, we did this. Also, I haven't been hunting since I was a kid. So, you know, we made this ad and this ad... The way I describe it was, it, it was really me saying, look, I'm right about background checks, and the NRA is wrong, and I know what the heck I'm talking about. And a lot of folks who, you know, a lot of folks agreed with me, and even the ones who didn't looked at it and said, you know what, this guy's telling me what he really believes, and I, and I see why he believes it. And um, we ended up, you know, obviously we didn't win the race, but I, we did win the argument over background checks. NRA picked up, pulled their ads, left. Um, and on top of that, uh, I outperformed every other Democrat on the ballot in Missouri last year, including one who was endorsed by the NRA. So I think what it goes to show is that, you know, you just go out and say what you believe, and, and that's really what voters are looking for. This, uh, so I'm glad you ran the campaign that you did, and I'm glad you made that ad, and I'm glad you point out that you're a progressive running in a red state. Um, one of the... Uh, arguments I think that the Democratic Party is having is uh, what to do um, after the election of Donald Trump and the decimation of the Democratic Party and it seems to be two lines of thought. Do we abandon sort of the liberal progressive ideas that you know Americans count on and Americans need or should we try to contort ourselves mm. and run to the middle mm. um, to try to win back all of these voters that we lost uh, to this sort of faux populist message that Donald Trump uh, ran on and got elected. So, uh, you know, I've heard you say this again, you know, I'm a progressive in a red state and you really resonated. You won statewide office in Missouri. Mm -hmm. What is the prescription for Democrats going forward? So I actually think it's pretty, it's a lot simpler um, than a lot of folks make it when they kind of dissect it this way. Um, the first thing is, I mean, you mentioned, so like in 2012, um, I won on the same day that President Obama lost Missouri by almost 10. And then obviously last year we outperformed the top of the ticket by 16. And everybody in my state knew I was a progressive. But what I think the lesson from that is, uh, should be, that Look, voters are willing to forgive you for, for having a position that they don't also have. Mm. What they care about is they want to know that you're, you're saying what you truly believe, and they want to know that you believe it because you care about them. And if that's the case, they'll consider voting for you. They're just looking for everyday courage. That's really what they want. And so that's why this uh, sort of conversation that is going on right now where people are saying, do we, uh, just, uh, just the way you described it, do we aim more at what people refer to as the base or do we go over here to try and persuade people? I think this is a totally false choice because it's 2017. Like, you don't say one thing to one group and another thing to another group and not have people know. Mm. Also, mm -hmm. like, in your common interactions with people in your life, like, with your friends, 
if you say something that you don't believe, they don't like that. Well, the same thing for voters. Like, politics is way simpler than we make it. I mean, it's be a decent person, you know, say what you really believe. So if you think about it as, like, you got one group over here, another group over here, you could say something to one group and then go say something different to another group. They're both going to find out about it. Mm -hmm. So instead, my belief is, you say what you truly believe. The folks who agree with you, they get excited about it and appreciate it. But then when you go say what you truly believe to this other group who may not agree with you as often, two things happen. One, the people who are already with you, they're excited because they're going, yeah, he's he or she is for real. They, they don't say something different when they're not around me. The other thing that happens is you got a chance to persuade these people over here mm -hmm. because you don't win arguments you don't make. It's real simple. Mm -hmm. I mean... So I think this is way simpler than people make. I, I hear Misty was co-signing a lot of what you were saying <laughs> over there. Misty, do you want to uh, uh, jump in here? Sure. I just thought it was funny because you're like, um, uh, you just said something about it, it's really simple. Just be a good person. And I was going to say, and don't sexually harass or assault women. Yes. What, yes. A, what an idea, yeah. right? Oh, I, what I, a novel um, idea. <laughs> yeah. I would put that... I would put that within being a good person. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems these days, you yeah. know. Uh, no, I. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So I'm. I'm in the midst of a politics here in Iowa, and there's um, definitely, I think, here. You know, I mostly speak to the local level here at the state level. Um, there is a conversation I think being had in the current gubernatorial race for sure. Um, how do we re-engage people who voted for Trump? And I think what you said was right. People. I've been on the campaign trail. I mean, from. Our West, you know, I say the West Coast to East Coast. I know that doesn't make any sense in Iowa, but um, we say the same thing in Missouri. <laughs> and and the truth is, in in my personal experiences, I'm really speaking to my personal experiences. Um, rural and urban voters in Iowa um, all care about very similar things, and what they want is an authentic person. So I wrote down authenticity when you were talking, and that does take the everyday courage to speak truth to someone who you know may not agree with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like absolutely what I see people really encouraged by, especially with newer folks who are running for office. There's someone at the table who's a local elected official. And I think the the way that we can regain trust from voters and in the political system is just um, by being our authentic, our authentic selves, you know, and coming to the table when we also don't know something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and recognizing that. Because, for example, in the state of Iowa, uh, agriculture is such mm -hmm. a deep, issue mm -hmm. um but there's just so many pieces of it and so i don't think there's one candidate right now in the gubernatorial race maybe john norris but besides that who could really speak to all the depths of that and i think coming to the table with farmers and really recognizing that is like a piece of that authenticity that people really want to see it i think it says a lot about politics that the highest compliment that a politician can get it seems is you seem really comfortable in your own skin mm -hmm. or, or like mm -hmm. you seem like a normal person and the reason I think that is <laughs> hilarious is because you never hear anybody say you know what I really like about my accountant is you know <laughs> he just really seems like a normal guy like no like no one ever says that right mm -hmm. it's this special compliment they reserve only for politicians and what people should take from that is like Folks just want to hear what you're really about, and they're willing to hear you out. And so, you know, that's that's what explains. Two hundred twenty thousand, more than two hundred twenty thousand folks last year voted for Donald Trump in Missouri and voted for me, knowing that we basically agreed on almost nothing. And uh, but they were saying about me at least, they were just like, I know what this guy has to offer. He's being real with me. Mm. So, Jason, you ran as a progressive in a red state, but you ran as a, a young progressive mm. in a red state. And, no choice. <laughs> but, but yes. Your age is your age, right? Yes. Um, I, think, I guess I have, I have sort of two questions for you. Um, 
What's that like? Uh, what would you advise other young candidates uh, thinking about running for office? And sort of what's your response to sort of the, re the, the resistance in response to the election of Donald Trump? You see a lot of uh, young people mm -hmm. getting involved and organizing and paying attention to politics for the very first time. You see a lot of young persons of color, uh, young people in the LGBTQ plus community that are now really uh, organizing. Um, and just uh, there's a level of uh, incensement and, 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 and whatnot. Like, what's your response to that about sort of the generation of like young people that are, you know, looking at the Trump administration and thinking about politics for the very first time? Yeah. Uh, raise your hand if you know somebody who has gotten involved this year and they've never been involved before that. Okay, it's like almost every hand in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting because if I had asked that same question last year, it would it would not have been almost every hand in the room. Um, and so my response to all of this is optimism. It's, it's energizing. The most effective movements in the history of this country are not ones that start in Washington and go out. <laughs> They're the ones that start everywhere else and go to Washington. And that's what's happening all over the country. You know, you talk about millennials. You know, there's no shortage of stereotypes that people drag out about the millennial generation. I mean, you know, entitled, you know, all sorts of... The, by the way, the thing where they like... Millennials like avocado toast. This is like a thing. Yeah. I'm just a little bit of a we, sidebar. Didn't we address we, yeah, that on one but of the... Do you like avocado yeah. toast? Okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> I'm a millennial, right? I'm a senior millennial, but I'm a millennial. I have... I saw so many articles, like headlines about avocado toast and millennials, I was like, I think I have to try some <laughs> avocado... It's pretty good. Like, I mean, I, I don't understand why people are mad about it. Like, it's, it's avocado, good, toast, good. Anyway, but so that's not what I came to talk about. But, but anyway, uh, going back to your point, um, the, the stuff that people lay on the millennial generation is, you know, basically this idea that millennials are entitled. And a lot of it comes out of this sense that, you know, you see a lot of millennials who they they're very so uh, a lot of the generation is very uh, socially conscious and and you see a lot of folks who uh, want their the entity that signs their paycheck or the place where they work to reflect positively on their own identity of who they are and so a lot of people look at that and they're like oh this is complacent i think it's patriotic i think that if you want you know what you do between nine and five to make your community a better place then that makes you a patriot. That makes you somebody who wants to make your country a better place. I don't see that as entitled at all. And, and I think what you're seeing here is that coming to fruition, um, particularly in response to uh, the results of the election in 2016. Um, and as for, you asked what the experience was like being a young candidate. Uh, obviously, this is the oldest I've ever been. <laughs> so as a result, every race I've ever had, I've been the young candidate. And, and what's always been interesting to me is... That's always been a positive for me. It's always been an advantage for me, really, because I mean, when I think back to the first time I ran for office in 2008, I was 27. I ran for the state house. And I remember when I first started knocking on doors, I was a little bit trepidatious, wondering how I was going to be received. Uh, you know, I'm a skinny kid with a crew cut, right? <laughs> Recently back from Afghanistan, wearing a polo shirt with my name on it, right? And I'm knocking on your door. And, and what was really uh, encouraging about it was the the higher you went up the generational spectrum of the person who ended up opening that door, the more excited they were about me being younger. I mean, I, I, those were the folks who were like, I love that you're young. We need some new blood. We need that. And then there seems to be, uh, I think, sort of a, an element of um, the more senior generations looking at this and going, you know, 
my generation's been doing this for a while and I don't like the results. So I think it's time to try a new one. So mm -hmm. do you get that same sort of reception from your fellow colleagues as, a, as an elected official? Um, I definitely can, can um, uh, imagine that experience with the electorate, but do you get that from other elected officials who are, you know, if not a decade, if not two, three, four, sometimes decades older than you? Yeah, I don't think it's that dissimilar. I mean, you know, now I'm just a guy. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, right. But, yeah, I mean, when I was Secretary of State, um, I – look, I think no matter your age, when you when you bring a lot of in energy and enthusiasm to uh, to politics or to anything else, people respond positively to that. Mm -hmm. And and so that was that was my experience. Uh, I.e. I Bernie Sanders, um, who mm -hmm. was an old guy and brought a lot of excitement to politics, uh, mm -hmm. folks would argue – on that note, um, the the political gossip train has been a buzz with talk about a return for Bernie Sanders or maybe Joe Biden uh, to to run for president. Um, is it time for fresh leadership? And 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 if so, if the answer to that question is yes, who are some younger, more diverse faces we we might uh, uh, want to pay attention to in 2020? Well, first of all, I think we should not just talk about this sort of thing in, in um, sort of in a 2020 way. I mean, we have 2018 uh, coming up. It's really important. And and in general, when people talk about leadership in the party, what I always point out to people, first of all, is uh, that actually, you know, there's a whole lot of people who are taking a lead in the party that people are very excited about. But I've been in 32 states this year, and I've asked in several states that question I asked a few minutes ago where I asked people to raise their hand if they know somebody who's been involved. I've also met a ton of people who have just gotten involved this year. And the reason that I'm really excited about it and the reason I'm so optimistic about what's happening in the party right now is that the people who I meet who did just get involved this year, almost none of them are coming to me and telling me that it's because of a politician they saw on their TV. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's. You know, my neighbor down the street uh, called me and said, hey, I know we live in a super red congressional district, but we're going to this town hall and we're going to demand answers about health care, you know, or, or various other ways that they've gotten involved. That's what makes me really, really optimistic. And I think there's a lot of great uh, folks in the party. Um, you know, you talk about some of the yesterday, some of the younger um, folks who are really, uh, I think, taking off and doing well. Uh, I think Kamala Harris is great. She's a friend. I think a, a great leader. Um, people like Joe Kennedy. So. Um, so I think there's a lot of really great people. I'm leaving out a bunch, but there are a lot of them. Mm. Uh, Jason, you said that 220,000 people voted for you, also voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That's that's incredible. Um, I'm a bit conflicted uh, about that, um, to be honest, as well, um, because I feel like sometimes we or we haven't really addressed effectively addressed the question of race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a recent New York Times piece where they interviewed a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, person and they sort of normalized uh, um, Nazism, uh, um, and, the, and you know the the article was reprimanded, you know, around. But like, how do you how do you talk to people about race in Missouri? And when you're traveling, you've been in Iowa several times, or I think you're going to New Hampshire here soon, and you're doing your work for Let America Vote, which you know the racial implications of of restricting you know the rights to vote are you know mm -hmm. seriously profound. Like, how do how do progressives progressives talk to um, white conservatives or people that voted for Donald Trump about race? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, we have to be really honest about this, and we and it doesn't make any sense. When we're talking, for instance, about voting rights, which, as you pointed out, um, you know, I'm, I'm all over the country talking about a lot, 
you know, this thing where there's an, there's an urge to be real polite and say things like, look, there, there are certain folks that the Republicans don't want to have. No, like we got to be real honest about the fact that when the court says, for instance, that uh, redistricting maps or uh, voter suppression laws are, are done in a way to marginalize minority voters, like that is a churched up way of saying that the bills are racist. We right. gotta we we need to be honest and have that conversation, right? And and we just gotta say it plainly. And we gotta point out that when when the Republican Party has a political strategy that's about trying to make it a lot harder to vote for folks uh, who are minorities, whether it's um, you know uh, Hispanics or African Americans, whether or or it's disabled folks or young people, like they're really getting aggressive now about trying to keep young people from voting. We got to be really uh, plain and say, look, this is no, this is about nothing other than they're trying to use this to win elections. And and instead of them saying, hey, you know what, um, African Americans aren't responding to our policies, so maybe we should uh, take a look at our policies and see if we should we should reexamine them so that we can bring some more folks into the party. No, they're just saying, hey, instead of doing that, instead of trying to include people in the party, let's just exclude them from our democracy. Mm. And look, what that means is it's a lot of the battles of the civil rights movement are back. And and that makes people uncomfortable, uh, but we have to acknowledge it, right? Because if we let them take folks' uh, right to vote away, then the country's going to go backwards. And that's what the Republican Party wants, and I'm not cool with it. I'm not cool with us going back. Let me let me clarify something, I, because this is being recorded. I said, uh, how do you talk to white voters who voted for Donald Trump about race? I don't mean to imply that everyone who voted for Donald Trump is racist <laughs> or was <laughs> motivated. But let me, did. but just to follow up on your uh, um, on this discussion, this mm -hmm. line of discussion, um, how do you weigh in on like the NFL protests, uh, oh, sure. standing or sitting uh, for the national anthem? And if you were advising Colin Kaepernick, what would you say to him? If you were advising uh, Roger Goodell, what would you say to to him about this? Sure. Well, look. Um, I haven't given a lot of thought to what I would say to either of those two <laughs> folks, but what? But I, I have had this conversation with a lot of with a lot of people, and I can tell you what I what I tell folks, which is one: it is important to remember that uh, when you look at the nature of protest in the history of this country, uh, it's you don't see a protest that is out there trumpeting a popular position. If a protest is out there saying something that's already popular, it is not a protest. It is a political rally, is what it is. <laughs> so it's very different. And so, and, and what always happens with protest, or frequently happens with protest, is if somebody doesn't like the underlying mm -hmm. message and the underlying question that the, that the protest is trying to... Um, is trying to ask, then what people do is they make it about the protest. So when President Trump wants to make, you, you mentioned the NFL protest, wants to make this about the flag, that's because President Trump and others don't want to have the underlying conversation. And so what I say to people is, when they try and make this about patriotism, I say, look, uh, you know, patriotism is not about making everyone stand and salute the flag. Patriotism is about making this a country where everyone wants to. And, and that... That, I think, is the most important point, that, look, when, when people uh, protest, we should, we should take a moment, listen to what they have to say, and then ask ourselves if there's things that can be done that will improve the lives of every American, not just, not just your own experience. Yeah. I'm so glad uh, that we're having this conversation. And, uh, folks, if you haven't subscribed to Majority 54, mm -hmm. a podcast already, Thanks. please, please do it. Thanks for the um, I, I listened to uh, uh, some of these episodes, and on one of the episodes, you actually interviewed 
um, uh, a protester, uh, a protester and an activist, let's call him an activist from uh, Ferguson in the aftermath of, of what happened in Ferguson. Um, Who's actually an elected official now. Yeah, he is now, yeah. Right, right. His name's Bruce Franks. Fascinating, fascinating episode. You all should check it out if you can. I was struck, though, um, by the fact that, uh, and, and I'll just be plain spoken mm-hmm. here, that a, uh, that a white person is is having these conversations and is delving into um, uh, race and talking about how some of these issues uh, do have uh, racial undertones to them and why it's important that we, we do that. Why, why is it important that we have those conversations? And why have you taken it upon yourself to have these conversations that can be political landmines? Well, because, look, these are the conversations that Americans are having around the table. I mean, you know, politicians can can avoid them, I guess, and, and pretend that they're not happening. But when you do that, when you don't talk about them, people go home, they have these conversations themselves. Th- this is what people people expect you to talk about what they're talking about, right? And it's an important it, – it is an incredibly important uh, and very divisive issue in the country right now. And so one of the things that came up in that conversation, for instance, is, you know, we talked about Black Lives Matter. And one of the things that I think is really important to point out, and we did in the episode, is that Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter too, or Black Lives Matter also, right? It's an important piece of context, I think, for people to to recognize. And, and, and so when people try and uh, portray the Black Lives Matter movement as being anti-police, you know, or anti-white, right? I mean, yeah. what yeah. I what I point out is one: it means Black Lives Matter also, not exclusively, just also. But also, what what it it's not about being anti-police. Really, it's about being in favor of a better relationship with the police. You know, that's and so look there. So I think that's one of the things that came out of that conversation and is really valuable. I mean, Bruce Franks is a guy who created an organization to develop a better relationship with the police. Yeah. And and as I understand, the, the project or the mission of Majority 54 is to have conversations or facilitate conversations with folks who may not think like you. The, I mean, the whole idea of, look, as I've been to... I, as I said, I've been to 32 states this year uh, talking to Democrats, and one of the most common questions I've, I've gotten from people is, how do I talk to my, my friend who, uh, you know, who I've had since high school, who I love, who voted for Trump? How do I talk to my, my aunt? You know, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and so it's a podcast that um, you know, shares the stories of people who are actually experiencing issues in their, in their real lives so that you're in a better position uh, as the 54% of the country who didn't vote for Trump to talk to the people who did and, and to have these conversations in a productive way. Misty, you've been quiet over there. <laughs> Great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's it going to take to convince you to do a live episode of Majority 54 here in Iowa? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I'm. I'm. Uh, we haven't done any live episodes in Kansas City yet, where I'm from. So <laughs> fair, um, fair. So I guess you'd have to start with convincing me to do a live. We can come down and of, show you how to do it if you uh, want. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm impressed that y'all are doing this because I'm still like getting used to hosting a podcast uh, that's not live. So, right on, right on. One of one of the questions I have is: um, so you do a lot. You. You uh, served this country. You were Army intelligence officer. You came back. You were Secretary of State. Um, you ran for United States Senate. You're president of Let America Vote, and you host a podcast literally designed to facilitate meaningful dialogue between folks who may not always agree. Uh, 
why do you do this and why is it important? Uh, you know, look, I was raised um, in a really public service oriented household. I mean, my folks were juvenile probation officers. My dad was a, a police officer at night and and they took in kids whose who's, um, whose families were struggling. They became basically like my brothers. And, and so we were just raised to understand that if you see something that you can do something about, if you see something wrong, you can do something about it, you're supposed to. And I think to me, that's the simplest answer. That combined with, you know, serving in the army, uh, I just really learned that the best way to deal with things when you see something that you don't like is not to sit around and be upset about it or just hope it changes, is to just actively be involved in trying to change it every day. Mm -hmm. You know, my mm -hmm. friends right now who are the most frustrated, because uh, people ask me often, they'll say, aren't you frustrated watching what's going on? And the truth is, my friends who are frustrated are the ones who don't have an outlet or an ability to affect change or to get up every day and fight for the cause of progress. But, you know, obviously I'd like there to be a different president, but I, look, but I have the privilege of getting to wake up every day and fight for what I believe in. And and that's kind of what keeps me going. It's just really important to me. Yeah. You have a son, is that right? I do, yeah. I have a four-year-old son named True. Yeah. So um, I'm curious to, you know, so you're also a father. <laughs> you're doing all this mm -hmm. stuff and also a father. So what is it that you hope that True um, sees change in his lifetime over the next 10 years? Like you're running around 32 states. I've seen you at multiple mm -hmm. Iowa events because my candidate usually speaks mm -hmm. before you. <laughs> and um, and I'm just curious, like, what is it like? What is this vision that's pushing you and keeping you motivated? Um through throughout even after losing mm -hmm. an election yourself well look um i think mm -hmm. that what i mean you asked about like my family and how, how that sort of informs um the way i look at this stuff i i think that's a really important question because i think that's what informs how all of us really look at not just politics but the world around us you know if there's there are many things that unite every american but one of the biggest things that unites all of us is that what we all really want is we want our family to be happy, healthy, safe, and nearby, right? And if you take, if you look at all the issues out there, they all kind of come back to that, right? You know, if about having our community be safe for our family, about you know, like so, some of you are here probably for college, some of you have kids that are off somewhere else in college, like you really want your community to be a place where. Uh, the jobs pay enough and the debt from college is, is not too high to where your kids can come back and raise their kids where you raise them. Like that's really what a lot of this experience is about. And, uh, and for me, you know, certainly becoming a dad a few years ago definitely helped shape my perspective and, and helped clarify that for me. Um, I mean, I, I sometimes joke about how, not even joking, it's serious, but like perspective is everything. And like, the movies that make you cry, it changes once you have a kid, right? Like before, like for me, <laughs> like it was like, it was Rudy because of the dad scene at the end where his dad's cheering for him. But now it's like any movie where there's a, a kid because now I don't see it as somebody who has a dad, I see it as somebody who is a dad. But but that like shapes everything, yeah. right? And, and that's yeah. true for all of us. What we all want is our family to be happy, healthy, safe, and nearby. And uh, I know that's true for me too. And when you say happy, um, so I have a similar theory, but do you, does happy include opportunity? Absolutely. I mean, look, like uh, career opportunity, life opportunity, financial stresses, obviously all of these things have, have a huge impact on, on quality of life. So why, why have you decided to, um, 
like drive the the um, voting issue as the forefront of the work that you're doing now? Like, how is that about opportunity? Is that about democracy? Like, how does that relate to this vision that you just pre presented to all of us? Well, look, I mean, there's a few things. One, um, you know, not to put, not to, I mean, to put it really plainly, I, I was willing to volunteer to go overseas and. and and put my life on the line for the idea that there are certain rights and freedoms that the nation has to mm -hmm. offer. So when I see President Trump and, you know, people like Paul Pate here in Iowa doing mm -hmm. things to try and take, uh, you know, roll some of those rights back, it bothers me. But also in my own experience, I was the chief election official, the secretary of state for four years in Missouri, where we had a GOP supermajority. So I've seen up close and personal the voter suppression playbook and how it works. And, and, and so it has three parts. Part one is you undermine faith in American democracy. Part two, you create obstacles to voting. Part three, you create obstacles to the obstacles. So when President Trump said that three to five million illegal voters voted in the election, which is a huge lie, it, in my mind, it's the biggest lie that a sitting president's ever told. And I know that it's step one in the, in the playbook for voter suppression. Mm -hmm. It's undermined faith in American democracy. Step two is stuff like passing a photo ID law, like what's happened here. Mm -hmm. And then step three is stuff like what the, what they're doing in other states to try and make it a lot harder uh, for young people to vote, a, an additional obstacle. The, the clearest example of this is what they did a couple of years ago in Alabama, where they passed a photo ID law. And then, so that's obstacle, and then obstacle to the obstacle, they closed all the DMVs in the black parts of Alabama. Mm -hmm. And and so I look at all this and I recognize it for what it is, which is this is a political strategy by the Republican Party to help them win elections. It's not a policy difference between the parties. It is no different than when they make decisions about, um, you know, what to say in their TV ads, who to send mail to, which doors to knock on. They're doing it to win elections. And it is the centerpiece of President Trump's reelection strategy mm -hmm. uh, is to try and have every state have laws like Wisconsin uh, to make it really hard to vote. Because they figure if they do that, and the people who don't want to vote for them and want to vote for somebody else can't vote. Right. This resonates uh, for me as I, as I think about um, that sort of conventional saying we hear often in politics is that elections have consequences. And uh, I just have to venture a guess and say one of the reasons why folks are so motivated now uh, to get involved in politics is because they don't like the outcome of the last election. They don't like the outcome of the last election because there are, there are big differences in their lives. There's bad policy um, uh, really taking shape in the form of um, executive orders because this legislative session in Congress has been um, um, quite worthless and pathetic. Um, so there's bad things coming out of, of the White House. There's bad things coming out of state legislatures across the country. And folks, um, part of this reaction, I think, is, is because of that. Elections have consequences. One of the things, uh, just to pivot a, a tiny bit here, one of the things I've heard you say before is that everybody has a platform. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I know what you mean, but I want, I want to hear sure. you explain it because I think that's really, really important for every person to understand that there's a way in which they can uh, get involved. Yeah, it, look, it's, it's really important that as Americans that we're having these conversations with one another and that you know you tell people what you believe, why you believe it, that you tell your story. And, and it's not just people who are active in politics or who are on TV or whatever. It's everybody. I mean, if, if you care about you know, the direction of the country, you don't like the direction that it's going in, then you have to use your platform. And, and if you've got 
100 friends on Facebook and six coworkers, then you have a platform of 106 people right there to start with. And it's important to start conversations about it. It's important to say to people like today, like, hey, have you have you heard about this tax scam bill that they're pushing? <laughs> you know, it's, it's important to do that, to take those opportunities. Like, it's all of us have to be, I refer to this as we're in grab and oar territory, right? Like, you don't like how things are going, just grab an oar because we, we got a whole lot of rowing to do. And all of us have, have that. I always tell people, I say, I say, look, you know, when you're in the grocery store, and you're in the checkout line, and like the person next to you is looking at the tabloids about like the alien baby or whatever. Like it'll be awkward the first few times you turn to that person and are like, "Hey, have you heard about this crazy thing they want to do on taxes or whatever it is?" But like you know, you'll get used to it, and and, and it's you'll like be door glad. Door knocking. You're it's like it's just knock, like knock, just like knocking on doors. That's exactly right. So so Jason, you um, were an Army intelligence officer. Mm -hmm. You signed up after. 9-11, uh, and you did a tour in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about you, but like every time Donald Trump's about Donald Trump tweets about North Korea, mm -hmm. I freak out. Um, <laughs> should I? Should we be alarmed, or um, is there anything from your experience that can sort of like put us at ease about the disastrous foreign policy um, that we're seeing coming out of this administration? Help us feel safe. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't lie. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Should we be alarmed? Well, I'm alarmed. Uh, I will tell you that. Look, I think the worst thing, and this is a high bar, I think the worst thing that President Trump has done is I think he's made us a lot less safe. You know, uh, um, and there's a lot of different ways that he's done that. One of the ways that he's done that is he's basically abdicated the role of commander in chief in a lot of ways. Um, and and look, he has said, for instance. And this is just about a lack of courage. I mean, he said that he, as, as the president, is not going to be the one that makes decisions about how many people to send to a place like Afghanistan. And, uh, and look, that's wrong because the reason that he's doing that, and this is the problem with the entire way that he sees national security and foreign policy and everything else, the reason he's doing that is he doesn't want to take the blame when bad things happen. We've seen this, and there's several examples. And he wants to take credit when good things happen. Well, what that means is he has he has no vision for what foreign policy should be, for what our national security approach should be. I feel like sometimes the the, the informal motto within the White House for this administration must be just get to tomorrow. Mm. You know, it's whatever happened, just get to tomorrow, right? No long-term vision at all. And in the military, we had something called commander's intent. And commander's intent <laughs> was the idea that that the commander had laid out for you enough of a, a vision as to overall what he or she is trying to accomplish, that when, when a decision point comes up, and this from the very bottom of the chain of command all the way to the top, when a decision point comes up that you don't have exact guidance on, you know what the intent mm -hmm. of the boss is, so you know what decision to make. There's no commander's intent coming at all from the commander-in-chief right now, and that always makes us less dangerous, not to mention the fact that he's got a misinformation campaign going yeah. against the American intelligence community, and I've said before that I, I think often about um, you know, the people who are doing those jobs, like I did, where you, you go into a room to get information knowing that there's a risk that you won't get out of that room, and, and if I can't imagine how much harder that would have been if I thought that you know, the example being set from the top of the chain of command was that it didn't matter what information I got. You're referring to when Donald Trump essentially said he didn't need to read intelligence briefings. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and even beyond that, when he, he said he didn't need to read it, he didn't think it was valuable, but then on top of that, then he referred 
to the people who do intelligence work as Nazis. He, you know, he's over and over again um, just cited against the people who are defending the country, and, and that's wrong. So how do you so how do you square that? Because on the one hand, you've got an American president that seems um, to be able to um, encourage a nation to rally around the flag, and um, we disparage NFL players because they're disrespecting the military. When, on the other hand, um, even when he was campaigning, he talked about how he was smarter than you know, military <laughs> intel. He was smarter than the generals. Um, he has a secret plan to bring an end to ISIS 30 days after he's going to be elected. He doesn't need intelligence reports. So you've got the intelligence community. You've got the military community. And essentially, they're kind of one and the same. But you've got these communities that he disparages on the one hand. But... On the other hand, he goes out there and he sort of wraps himself in the flag and he kind of pits, you know, African-Americans. He pits liberals and, and everybody else who doesn't agree with him against the military and the intelligence community. How, how do we reconcile that? How does America allow this sort of thing to happen? Well, first of all, it's important to remember that 54 percent of the country voted for somebody not named Donald Trump to be president. Um, and so just because he won an election, or, you know, doesn't mean uh, that he won the argument about who America is or, or where we're going. So it's really important for us to understand that. Um, and, and so we have an opportunity to be a unifying force. I mean, when you have a president who seeks every day to, you know, divide the country further, uh, that means that what we have to do is we have to be able to do more than just talk about his failings or the failings of Congress. We have to be able to lay out you know, our vision for the country where we want to take it. And, and, and I think that's all about you know, uh, having the courage to make our argument and, and making our argument to everybody. And a, a good example of it uh, is uh, the value in doing this is if you look at Obamacare, if you look at, at the ACA, you know, seven years ago, a Democratic president, a Democratic Congress, got together and passed a law that extended health care to millions of people, mm -hmm. saved people's lives. And then Democratic candidates around the country hid from it, didn't defend it. And then we were all shocked and surprised when after a while of nobody defending it, it wasn't very popular. And then November of last year comes along and you've got a Republican in the White House, you've got Republicans all up and down in Congress. And I got a friend who likes to say that sometimes courage is just the lack of any other options. Uh, then all of a sudden, for lack of any other options, Democrats around the country we locked arms and, and made the argument for it. And then, lo and behold, a few months later, was pretty popular. Mm -hmm. And again, everybody was shocked and surprised somehow. Well, to me, that just means like we know what we want to do. I mean, on healthcare, for instance, we believe that healthcare should be treated as a right. I happen to think that means single payer. But, but it just means we've got to keep making our argument on this issue and on a whole bunch of other stuff. And um, look, we don't have a lot of convincing to do to convince Americans that uh, President Trump's already a failed presidency. I, I think most Americans feel that way. But we do have to make sure that we're very clear um, about our vision and what we want to do. Is it, we've got to get through 2018, but is it, is it, <laughs> is it too early uh, to start thinking about 2020. I mean, we are in Iowa, um, but should we be thinking about potential candidates and what we want the, the primary to look like now? We should be thinking about 2018 okay. um, because uh, we have real opportunities in 2018. I mean, look, 
obviously the enthusiasm is there. It's really clear. But the other thing is, if one of the things you're concerned about is 2020, uh, taking the House in 2018, you know, and and giving the House the opportunity to actually look, you know, investigate a lot of the stuff that's been going on with the Trump administration is um, is certainly helpful in that regard. Um, and Americans want to want that to happen. So. Um, so yeah, I think that we've got to be firmly focused on it. You have big opportunities here in 2018 um, to be a part of that. Excellent. Well, Jason, this has been awesome. And <laughs> I had fun. I really, Thanks. really do appreciate you sticking around for this special feature of Political Party Live. Uh, we are going to uh, uh, end the podcast formally now, and then we will take uh, questions uh, for about 15 minutes. But folks, please trust me. Uh, subscribe to Majority 54. It's something uh, that everybody ought to uh, uh, be listening to. Share it with your friends. Check out the work Jason's doing with Let America Vote. Um, and stay engaged. Uh, as Jason has said over and over again, everybody has a platform, and it's our responsibility uh, as Americans now uh, to get to it because we've got a lot of work to do. So thank you again. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you for what you all are doing. I appreciate it.